look at somebody and say, it's good to see you. Don't lie to them like you did last week. Mean it this time. Say, it's good to see you. And happy Father's Day. Look at somebody and say, happy Father's Day. Aren't you thankful for your dad this morning? Amen. Can we just give all of our fathers so thankful that you're here this morning. Uh, my name's Sam. I have the great privilege of being the lead pastor here at Crossroads. And what that means is every single week I try to tell the greatest story ever told. Now, not because I'm some great communicator or it's even my story, but I believe this story is a story about Jesus. And Jesus is the greatest person to ever walk the face of the planet. I actually believe he's more than just a person. I believe he's God in the flesh. So if you've ever asked the question, what is God like? You don't have to look any further than the person of Jesus. And we believe the Bible is this story about Jesus. We say this around here. We say it's all about Jesus. We wrote it on the wall if you need some help. What that means is you're going to need a Bible to follow along. And so if you forgot your Bible, we got you covered. You can just slip up your hand and one of our ushers will get one to you. And then if you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. We pray that you read it every single day because every time you do, you get to meet with Jesus. Amen? Amen. Three of you think that. Every time you read the Bible, you get to meet with Jesus. Amen? Yeah. Amen. So hey, turn in your Bible to the book of John. And if you're new to the Bible, you can start in the right and turn left and you'll find it much faster. You can go two thirds of the way through and you'll find some guys' names, Matt, Mark, Luke, and then John. We're going to be in John chapter five. And for the sermon today, uh, to help you follow along and help you take notes for not so small groups, you should have received a uh, sermon note sheet on your way in. If you didn't, you can just slip up your hand and our ushers will get one of those to you. And, uh, and That'll help anchor you for the sermon and help you take notes and be prepared for not-so-small groups, which I know that all of you are a part of. Amen. Don't lie. Uh, hey, we're so glad you're here. Open to uh, John chapter 5, starting in verse 19. Let me give you like a little road map, some, set some expectation for this morning. Uh, I'm going to read a lengthy uh, portion of scripture. It's a discourse, a long discourse from Jesus. It might as well be a dissertation about who he is and uh, coordinates with the Old Testament. And then what I, I'm going to share a few things about the passage. Then we're going to watch a video that's going to help us uh, kind of anchor us um, and teach us some things that this passage is pointing to. And then we'll kind of wrap up uh, towards the end with some implications and some encouragements and uh, and just uh, try my best as I, I didn't manage my time well to talk about fathers for just a moment. Uh, but as we preach through books of the Bible, uh, we kind of let that be the precedent, not holidays, not any topic, anything that's going on. We just drive through uh, the scriptures. And, and I think the scripture gives us some kind of jumping, you know, a launch pad, if you will, uh, to talk about fathers. And so I want to do a little bit of that today. But uh, let's look at this particular lengthy passage. So I want you to open your Bibles, make sure you're following along. And to help you go along, we're going to be in verse uh, 19 and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. Say amen when you're there. Amen. amen. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father 
doing. Let me just stop right there for a moment. If, you, if some people may want to use this verse to diminish the person of Jesus and say, see, Jesus could only do what he saw the Father doing, but here's what Jesus is actually saying. Here's what you got to understand. One, he's calling God his Father, which is revolutionary, that, that he would actually say, I know him as Father, and then uh, the scriptures would tell us no one has seen God, and he says he actually sees the Father and then does what the Father does, and he's saying, I actually do God things. And so you can work out the implications. If I can do the things that God does, then that makes me God. And that's why we can confidently say that Jesus is claiming to be God, despite uh, maybe some uh, attempts to say Jesus never said those things. So right off the bat, he says, I can do nothing on my own. Uh, he says, I, truly I say, I can do nothing, uh, the Son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Now, keep journeying with me. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. You're going to want to underline that, put an asterisk beside it. Let me read that verse again. Jesus says, I say to you, whoever hears and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. That's going to anchor us. That's a title. I want you to say it with me. The Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to resurrection of life and those who have done evil to resurrection of of judgment. Then he goes on, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he is borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning light, uh, a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one who has sent me. Then he clarifies. He's saying, you've not seen him, 
You do not hear him. I hear him. I see him. He puts a distinction between them or us and himself. He says in verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Or in other words, it's all about Jesus. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for who you are and who you are to us. I ask for your grace today as we wrestle with this deep and insightful passage, your own words, this glorious discourse that you leave for us to let us know who you are. And Jesus, we could look to you and we could study you and we could, uh, we could follow you around for all of eternity and we would never plunge the depths of who you are. Let us seek to know you and be known by you for your glory and the good of this valley. And everyone said, amen. This is a portion of scripture that we could literally take the next six months and begin to break down all of the little nuances that Jesus begins to share with us. And so uh, John writes this specifically, and he, he's warning you to get a picture of who Jesus is. As the video bumper before I came up said, John writes these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so he doesn't want to just claim that if Jesus doesn't also claim that. And so he writes very intently the words of Jesus. He was more than likely there sitting as a young boy listening to these words and maybe he jotted them down. Maybe it was so impactful to him that, that he could uh, remember them just from his memory alone. And yet he leaves this discourse for us that has immense implications about the person of Jesus. And so I want to wrestle with some of these implications, but let me kind of set the precedent for what I want to try to do in this particular sermon. Because uh, the amount of time it would take for us to kind of uncover and unpack each little term and each title when he uses son of God and then he turns around and uses son of man and, and these are not interchangeable terms when he uses these terms and these titles he's saying fundamentally different things and so what I want to try to do for you and I've, I've said this before is I want to prepare an appetizer you know what I'm thankful for with four kids it's the appetizer menu amen uh, because the reality is you ain't getting an entree at my house if we get an entree you splitting it four ways bro you know what I'm talking about because here's the reality an appetizer for a child can be a full meal amen but for, for an adult, it only does its trick. It arouses the appetite. It, it stirs you to hunger. So when I think about this particular moment, my, my job is to feed you, but the Bible never tells me how much 
to feed you. Somebody say amen to that. And so the reality is, is I, I want to I give you an appetizer. I want to give a bit to you. And if you're new in faith, or maybe you're, you're, you have no faith at all, you're still wrestling with this thing, can I just say that you don't have to believe before you belong. You belong here. If you're on your journey searching, listen, we want to help persuade you, teach you, and disciple you that you may come to faith and have life in the name of Jesus. Because we believe that he is the the way, the truth, and the life, and that he is the way to God the Father. And so you don't have to believe and have all the, the lines checked out and, and know all the memory verses. You don't have to be a Bible baby or a felt board kid to belong here. You are welcome here. But here's what, uh, and then if you're new in faith, here, here's what I hope sermons do for you. I, I hope that if you're young in the faith, that it fills you to fullness. It, it it encourages you, strengthens you, uh, brings nutrition to your soul. And if you have been following Jesus for any length of time as a mature believer and as is in all settings like this, what I hope is that you'll leave uh, spiritual milk and you'll move as you grow as an adult and you'll move into the meat of God's scripture. And so here's the reality. I've noticed this as my sons have gotten older uh, when they were when they're hungry and you're a child you look for someone to feed you you ever notice that got kids always mommy daddy hungry feed me right constantly non-stop friends they're eating us out of house and home pray for you boy okay right but but here's what I noticed about the maturation process of my son Judah is as he's gotten older he's less and less asked us to get him something to eat and he's starting to tiptoe to the cupboard and he's starting to find himself like there's nothing in there bro all right uh you have to go out and eat with the cat in the garage or something right uh there's uh, he's looking right because when you're a child and you are hungry you look for someone to feed you but when you're an adult you look for something to eat thanks dad uh amen when uh, we should get more amens than that when you're an adult you should feed yourself Amen. Right? Because here's the reality. A, a child nursing is cute. A man nursing is disturbing. Okay? All right? So let me tell you, if, if, you're, if you've been following Jesus for some time and you think my job is to feed you, grow up, sir. Amen. Ma'am? Right? <laughs> That's right. And so the reality is, is, is I want to help you as a God give you the tools in order that you may search the scriptures, that they may lead you to Jesus, because when you find Jesus, you will find life, not just existence. You'll find life in his name and fullness of life. Amen. And so uh, this particular passage is a passage that has immense implications. And the first part of it is, is it is a complicated portion of Scripture. Like I said, it's this discourse that could be considered a dissertation about who he is. And he makes bold claims. The first bold claim is he's saying that God is his own 
Father, this is revolutionary. This is not new. Maybe you've grown up in a Christian worldview, and I think oftentimes what we uh, take for granted is how Judeo-Christian worldview has shaped the Western world and has helped us advance in science, in, uh, in society. It's, it's, it's fostered and pushed us forward because the principles of the Scriptures are always push, pushing you forward. Amen? And so uh, there are kind of some things that we just kind of adopt as normative, but it's not. And this one thing is considering God to be your father. That's a, a new thing and a revolutionary thing because they believe that God was holy and different. Set apart is a term or transcendent would be a better term for God. He is above and outside of. And when Moses and the burning bush asked for God's name, he says this, I am that I am. What is he saying? He's saying that he is complete. He is all sufficient. He is everything that you could possibly imagine and more. He is the totality of everything that you could possibly hope for or need. That's what makes him holy and complete. He is all sufficient. And what you learn about yourself as you grow up, as a, 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 a recent Need to Breathe song would say, that a man needs a long life to know that he ain't right, all right? Right? The, what you find even in the Apostle Paul's progression early on in his ministry, he says, I am an apostle called not by men, but of God. As he progresses, he says, I'm least of the saints. And by the end of his ministry, he'll say, I'm chief of sinners. Listen, uh, the progression of spiritual maturity is not those who puff up their chest, but spiritual maturity will, lend, will, will lead you to bended knees where you realize that you are humble before a holy God. Somebody say amen to that. And so if, so if you want to you point out faithful saints who can help feed you and, and help you and stir you to hunger, then you find the people who have a sense of humility and a bended knee, not a upward chin. Amen? And so um, here, here's what uh, this idea is that God is set apart and different. He's holy. He's transcendent. And we're not and yet Jesus comes on the scene and says, God is not just transcendent. He and I are, I'm giving you a hint. He and I are, what? what? He says, I see him. But yet the Bible says no one has seen the Father. John, John's going to go on later and give Jesus' last discourse before he's arrested. And he's going to say, I and the Father are one. He is in me and I am in him. I see the Father and I do what the Father does. And, and he says, if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. Yet he says, no one has seen God, the only God. And yet, but if you've seen me, then you've seen him. That's why we can confidently say every single week and why I try to give you a simplistic way to think about deep, uh, deep theology that has immense implications is if you've ever asked the question, what is God like? You don't have to look any further than the person of Jesus. Amen. And so Jesus claims that. So if you have someone knock on your door, right, and try to take you through different highlighted texts, stop them for a moment, say, let's read all that's around them in the chapter before that, when they want to read here and then flip here and this highlighted part and then look here, see, Jesus never claimed to be God, but, but 
Why did they kill him if he didn't claim to be God? He's saying, I and the Father are one. I do what the Father does. I see the Father. He shows us something completely different. So then here comes the question, because when you try to take really complex things and you try to explain it to a seven-year-old, you feel like an idiot. How about you? Right? <laughs> right? You're trying, you're like, I, I got this. And they're like, how is, uh, is it Jesus and God and God and Jesus? Jesus is God's son, but he's not God. But yeah, you're, you ever, you ever experience, none, none of you have tried to explain this to your child, right? Shame on you, right? Uh, it is a humble, it will, lend, it will lead you to bended knees, right? Uh, it, it will show you, because here's the reality it is a complicated thing, amen? It's complicated. And, and here's what should give you hope. C.S. Lewis talks about in Mere Christianity, when he talks about this idea of this God represented in three persons. Look at your sermon notes, and that's the first one. God is one in three persons, the blessed Trinity. That's what, we, that's what we refer to him. God is one. We believe in one God, amen? And yet we see him in three distinct persons. And so this is, this is complicated, and it's difficult to explain. And, and he begins to say this. He says, the reason why it's complicated is because we're dealing in facts. We could make something up more simple. Are you with me? Could, should I say that again? Right. Uh, it, it, it's complicated because it is true. If it was simplistic and you could wrap your head around it, then you've replaced God. You've figured God out. And can I help you for a moment that if your theology has led you to believe that you have God figured out, then it's fundamentally bad theology. Amen. Let, let me say that one more time. Uh, for those in the back, like my dad, right? Uh, uh, if your theology, theology meaning what you believe about God, has led you to a place where you feel as though you understand God rather than seek to know God and be known by Him, but you fully understand Him, then this is fundamentally flawed theology and you should throw it away because you could study who God is for all of eternity and you would never plunge His depths. And that's what makes Him a personal God. Amen? Because like, how, how do relationships go for you? Like, you, you feel like you got her figured out, bro? <laughs> uh, no, right? Like, imagine what that'd be like. Listen, baby, I got you figured out. She's like, the, the heck you do, right? Like, you, know, let me, you ain't seen nothing yet, right? I, I'm going to show you a little more about who I am. That's what makes it a relationship. That's what makes God a person, a person to be known and to be discovered. C.S. Lewis begins to bring up this argument that people would begin to say in his day, and it's true in our day, that people say, I believe in a God, but not in a personal God. What they believe in is, is what we would call deism, the idea that God is some force, some spirit, maybe the initiator, because we can't explain how something came from nothing, because never has something came from no thing, right? And so everything came from someone, and maybe they believe that some force or deity, but he is not a personal God. He is absent or distant. And so when, when someone says that, 
I believe in a God, but not in a personal God, uh, that he's not fully able to be known as a person. The Christians would actually agree with that, but what they are describing is something less than personal. What they are describing is something that's impersonal. But what the Christian uh, Bible is showing us is something that is super personal, meaning that our God is beyond personality. He is super personal. And no other religion, if you study any other religion, Christianity is the only one on the market giving an explanation for a God that is beyond personality. Clear as mud? Right? Watch this video to help you out. So I've got a question that's always bothered me. The Bible says there's one God, but in other parts of the Bible, God is three, Father, Son, and Spirit. How can it be both? Yeah, this is a question that has mystified people for thousands of years. And while we can't fully explain it, I think we can better understand what it is that we can't fully understand. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, think of it this way. Here's a two-dimensional plane. And then here's an object with three dimensions that's going to pass through the 2D plane. Okay, right. From this perspective, the 3D objects above and below the plane. So now it makes sense. But imagine you were a 2D person stuck on the 2D plane. What would you see? I don't know. What would I see? Well, it would look like this. Oh, yeah, okay. From this perspective, it looks impossible. It's one object, and then, then two objects, and then three. But in reality, they're all one, just not in a way you're capable of understanding. Now, let's take this whole thing as a visual analogy for how we experience God. The claim in the Bible is that God is transcendent, a divine being through whom we live and move and have our being. Or, as God says, I am. Okay, but I live here in this universe, so when God appears, it will make sense in some ways, but in other ways, it will break my categories. Exactly. This happens all the time when people encounter the God of the Bible. So let's look first at how this happens in the Hebrew Scriptures. Throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, God appears in complicated ways that don't quite fit our categories. One common way this happens is with God's attributes. So an attribute is a way to describe what something is like. For example, a soccer ball is round. Right. Or God is wise. Yeah, great. Let's take God's wisdom. So the book of Proverbs says that God created the world by his wisdom. But then there are also poems in the book of Proverbs that describe God's wisdom as a person, a co-worker through whom God architected the universe. So God's attribute becomes a separate character? Yeah. This also happens with God's glory, which sometimes appears as a human figure on a throne that's engulfed in fire. Or take God's word, which he can speak to people, but sometimes his word appears like a person. Wait, so God's attributes have become new little gods? No, no. The biblical authors believe there's only one all-powerful God. But they're comfortable talking about them as different characters. Yeah, this is part of the way that the biblical authors portray the one God's complex identity. They're God's attributes and also distinct from God. Distinct from God and also God. Yes. Once we learn to spot that way of talking about God's identity, you begin to see it all over the scriptures. In fact, you find it in the first sentences of the Bible that mention the Spirit of God. So the opening line of the Bible is pretty familiar. In the beginning, God created. But then keep reading. Who is it that we see within creation hovering over the waters? The Spirit of God. 
Yeah, so the spirit refers to God's personal presence and energy that we can interact with here within creation. And so the Bible can refer to God's spirit as distinct from God. Distinct from God and also God. It's God's spirit. And while this sounds strange from our point of view, this complexity is what the biblical authors are trying to get us to see. So we've looked at God's attributes and God's spirit. Now let's make our last stop exploring God's complex identity in the Hebrew scriptures with a character called the Son of Man. So in the Bible, there's only one God that people are to worship, which makes this story in the book of Daniel really surprising. Daniel has a dream about a human figure called the Son of Man, which means a member of humanity. And Daniel dreams about this human getting elevated on a cloud, up and then higher up. Up into God's space. Yes, and then this human sits at the right hand of God's heavenly throne, and all humanity worships this human alongside God. A human where I expect to see God. Yeah, this human is a part of God's identity. This vision is about the climactic hope of the whole biblical story. God and humanity become one so they can rule the world together as one. So the Son of Man is distinct from God and also God. Exactly. So think back over everything we've looked at. In the Hebrew scriptures, God's identity is complex. And so when Jesus' followers encountered God as the Father, Son, and the Spirit, they already had categories for how these could all be the one God of the Bible. Okay, let's talk about that. Okay, so in the New Testament, we're introduced to Jesus of Nazareth. And he's human, but way more. His favorite title to call himself was the Son of Man. The figure in Daniel's vision. And the claim is that he is this complex God become human to unite other humans with God. Okay, so the Gospels portray Jesus as fully human. And also as Yahweh, the God of Israel. Jesus went around saying and doing things that only Yahweh can do, like forgiving people's sins or calming the chaotic waters. So they're saying Jesus is a human distinct from God and also God. Yeah, and that might sound crazy unless you've been reading the Hebrew scriptures, which prepared you for it. And then check this out. Jesus' first followers, the apostles, talked about his identity using the language of God's attributes. They called Jesus the glory of God, or the apostle Paul called Jesus the wisdom of God. Or John opens his gospel calling Jesus the word of God through whom the world was created. And then he says, the word was with God and was God. Okay, I get what they're doing and it hurts my brain. Totally. And if you want to spin your brain even more, consider this. Jesus, who's portrayed as God become human, would talk to God as a distinct person. And when he did, he called him Father. When Jesus talked about God, he wasn't referring to an abstract force or energy. He was talking about a personal being that you can relate to. There's a lot of personal images of God in the Bible. Ruler, creator, judge. But Jesus consistently referred to God as my father. Jesus experienced God as a source of infinite love. He said, the father has loved me since before the creation of the world. Apparently, Jesus knew the Father as an eternally others-centered, life-giving being. Right, like in the story about Jesus' baptism, when the Father says from heaven, this is my Son whom I love. And then keep reading. In that story, the person who brings that message of love from the Father to the Son is the Spirit of God. So we've talked about God's Spirit. Here within creation, it's through the Spirit that we interact with the divine. Yeah, and the same was true for Jesus. Through the Spirit, he experienced the Father's love. But it didn't stop there. Jesus promised that through him, the Spirit would go out and share the Father's love with all humanity and with all creation. 
So it can look like these are three distinct gods, but in some way that transcends my view of reality, they're also one. Right. This is what later followers of Jesus called the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are the one God of the Bible. I could see how they got there. But this isn't just a philosophy puzzle. To describe God as a triunity is to claim that the universe is held together by an eternal community of love. Which is something that I can't really understand. But the God of the Bible isn't a being that you understand. The point is to know and be known by this God so that we can participate in his love. So the importance of the Trinity is this, that when the Bible claims that God is love, he is not saying that God is the most loving. It's that God in and of himself is the very definition of love. And the only way for that to be possible is if in and of himself, he has this perfect relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and begins to say that the Father loves the Son and has given him all authority and honor and praise, this is revolutionary and this will be the thing that gets him killed. He'll refer to himself as the Son of God, but then he'll refer to what we saw in the video, this title of the Son of Man. Look at point two on your sermon note sheet, which is the Son of Man is equal to the Jewish Superman. The Jewish Superman. Here's what they would grow up hearing about, the Son of Man, which is a reference to Daniel 7. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go hunting, and I want you to go read when you leave here, when you get some time. I want you to look at Daniel 7. And it's this fantastic, like the video said, this fantastic passage that actually is surprising in the Hebrew Bible. Because here's what happens, is the Bible is beginning to place all of these things together this piece this aspect trying to show us one unified story and Jesus claims your next note on your note sheet Jesus claims that the whole story is about him or in other words it's all about Jesus the Bible is a story about Jesus. And Jesus, not Sam, makes this claim. He literally says that you've searched the scriptures because in them you believe that you have life. But the scriptures are about me. The scriptures point to me. The scriptures reveal to you, they accuse you, and they point out the flaws in you because it points out the rules, and sometimes the rules can cause us to miss the relationship. Are you with me? So all of these little pieces and all these little hints begin to show us the totality. So it's fascinating when Jesus considers himself the son of man. It was just last week, we've been talking about this figure in not so small groups, and, and even I had a couple young guys come up, and they've been studying the Hebrew Bible, and, and we were talking about this figure, and then a, then a young boy outside heard me talking, and he's at Christian Academy, and he goes, Pastor, and that's also like uh, Psalms 22, and he, he, he hears Daniel 7, and he says, well, that's also Psalm 22, and maybe you think Isaiah 52 and 
53, what happens is, is the whole Bible is pointing to Jesus, but how they missed it was not putting all the pieces of the puzzle together. From our perspective, just like when we view the Trinity, sometimes we want to segment these stories or these personalities or these titles, and Jesus says all of the law and all of the prophets are fulfilled this day among you, and he reads from Isaiah, right? And, and so, this story in Daniel 7 kind of goes like this. It describes the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days was another uh, term for God, that he has always been there. He always had the Ancient of Days. There was one as the Ancient of Days, and then there was one like the Son of Man, this human figure who the Ancient of Days gives glory and dominion and honor and calls all the people of the world to worship the Son of Man and gives him a throne. Now here's why this is unique and why this is different and why this is, this is so counterintuitive to the Jewish people and why they miss this and even why the disciples get frustrated with some of the things that Jesus says he's going to do. Well, here's the first kind of peculiar thing about Daniel 7 is the first command. How many know the first command? To have no other gods before him. So here's the problem with Daniel 7. The Ancient of Days gives glory and honor and dominion to the Son of Man and calls all the people to worship him like God. Here's the problem. If the Son of Man is not also God, then God himself has broken his first command. So then I'm led to believe that somehow this human-like figure is also God. There's actually another Bible project video that you can go hunting with that's called the angel of the Lord. When you see in the Old Testament, you'll see the manifestation of the angel of the Lord. And then all of a sudden we see this figure of the son of man. The angel of the Lord is God appearing like man. And the son of man is God become a man. Are you tracking with me? And so then Jesus comes on the scene and claims to be this figure the Son of Man. It will be the very thing at his trial. They'll ask him, are you claiming to be God? And he'll say, I am. And he'll say, and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. And Caiaphas, the, the chief priest, rents his garment and says, what more do you need to hear? So any claim that says that Jesus is just a good moral teacher, that he's just one prophet and one of God's sent ones, and Jesus never claimed to be God, he would have never got himself killed. And the title that destroyed him, but ultimately would take out the enemy himself because the Messiah will come and the seed of the woman will crush, crush the head of the serpent. He will bruise his heel, but he will crush his head. The son of man, the Jewish superman. Now, why is this important in this passage? Because ultimately, what people are trying to figure out is who's in charge. Who gets to make the rules? 
I mean, who gets to decide who's in and who's out? And, and who gets to decide who controls what people's behaviors are? Because you've got to understand where this particular passage comes in. Jesus has just healed a man from this area called Bethesda, having five colonnades, or where I'm from in the south, we call those porches. All right. And, and, and what has happened, I know it would be hard for you to picture, but there's become these encampments around these colonnades. Try to picture. I know you've never seen anything like it. But there's all these encampments around these colonnades, and there's a multitude of sick people waiting on this superstition of these waters to be stirred that people might get in the water and be healed. And Jesus comes to this one man, and he heals him. But here's what he says to them in the clause for him to be healed. He says, Take up your mat and walk. Take up your mat and walk. Now, now here's the thing. Jesus could have said, get up and walk. But he specifically says, take up your mat. Why? Because as soon as he takes up his mat, all of the religious leaders see him, and they see him breaking the rules that were set to try to keep the rules. You know what I mean? Like the rules for keeping the rules, and you don't really know what the rules are, but everybody else seems to know what the rules are. And if you break the rules or their perceived rules, they'll let you know really quick that you can't come in here unless you keep the rules. You, I know it's hard to imagine what that's like, but there's a lot of, are you, are you with me? There's a lot of rules for keeping the rules. And that's exactly what Jesus, because here's what can happen, is rules without some type of idea to push me. See, rules can be good, and that's where fathers can give rules. Amen? Dads, have authority over your house. Set the path for the wild nature of your children. The boys, help them become good, strong men, setting the course for their lives. The Bible says that if you spare, we won't go to there, right? The Bible says, if you spare the rod, you hate your son. Not spare the rod and you spoil your child. What's the point of the rod? This idea of discipline that moves people forward. The Bible says that those who are wicked despise discipline, but, but the godly will embrace discipline, right? Rules can be good, but rules are always meant to point me to relationship. But rules in order to keep the rules, when you can't figure out the rules and the rules aren't clear and we don't really know all the expectation, we can serve the rules, love the rules, and love the law, and you can search the rules and think that in them you have life, but you don't realize the rules were always meant to be a guideline and a barrier pointing me to the person of Jesus. Are you with me? See, sometimes churches have been guilty of that, right? We've loved the regulations. We've loved the rituals. We, we've loved the rules. And that was true of them. And he says, you know who accuses you? Moses. And he ties this to the law or the rules. He says, if you want to have fault, the rules are pointing out that no one can quite keep the rules. Have you seen this? People who will point fingers at you will do the exact same thing right? They'll, they'll judge you for, for, for not being perfect. And we're in this conversation of who's clean and who's unclean. And we can miss because Jesus says the traditions of men have made the word of God of no effect. People are asking the question, who is in charge? See, this man's carrying around his mat. And one of the rules was you can't carry your mat, which he didn't need his mat anymore. But it was just interesting. Jesus told him to pick up his mat. So he'd break the rules to keep the rules because he was the one that the rules were all about. Because it would bring to the surface, what did they really care about? 
Because they saw a man who was lame start walking. They don't ask him his name. They go, what are you doing breaking our rules? Hey, who told you you can walk with that mat? It's like the guy. Hey, you know, the guy, right? And think about this man's mentality and the journey he's taking on. We talked about not so small groups. Man, like think about how how self-centered he was that he didn't even ask the man's name who healed him and gave him everything. All he cared about was his social status and he made his way to the temple to show everybody that he had a mat. Jesus finds him and tells him, hey bro, you're well, go and sin no more. He says, listen, stop doing what you're doing, change. And then they're all like, wait a second, you're the guy who told him he could carry the mat? He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I'm in charge. So you care about the Sabbath. The Sabbath was always meant to point to me. I am the Sabbath. My father is working and I am working. Why? Because I am the son of man. And I get to judge right from wrong. I get to judge and I am a just judge. See what Jesus is declaring. He is indeed king of the world he is the one that all glory and honor and dominion are reserved for he is king he is lord and he is in charge and listen he is the righteous judge so if you've ever feared being the presence of a king if there's any anxiety about being in front of a judge This is the king, and this is the judge you want to be in front of. This is the one that Hebrews says we can come boldly before the throne room of grace. Stripped, bare. And yet, we can stand boldly before his grace. Why? Because he is the righteous judge, the son of man. But they couldn't quite put this together because they saw the Jewish superman. Right? And supermen do super things. They don't suffer and die. That's what they don't do. See, that's why it's complicated. That's why we're dealing with facts. That's why we're dealing with the good news of the gospel. The gospel is our God has become king by this upside down way of the cross. And we must follow Sue. And even the disciples couldn't quite piece it together. There's this story about the boneheaded brothers. You know any of them? Right? I got a few of them. James and John, they go to Jesus and they're like, hey, Jesus, J-Dog, come here. Right? Hey, when you go into your kingdom, we want to be one and two or two and one. I'll take a back seat to my brother, but not to a guy named Bart, you know? Right? Sue wants to work for a guy named Bart. Anyway, sorry. Uh, for anybody named Bart. Uh, so we want to be great. We want to be kingdom. We want to be in charge. We want authority. See, that's what they're all talking about. Everyone wants authority. Why? Because they want to avoid suffering. But think about why you want the promotion. It's like, man, my back's starting to go. I don't want to be the labor guy anymore. I want to be the manager. I want to tell other guys what to do, right? And then have you noticed this? The road construction crew, they got like six managers because they watch one guy do all the work. You ever notice that? Right? Because the psychologist would say that the chief end of man is to avoid suffering at all costs. 
And so we work hard. Why? Because we like air conditioning, right? <laughs> Amen. Somebody pray for you, boy. <laughs> we got it. Like, we, 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 we want comfort. We want security. We want authority so that we can lord over people and we can enjoy the benefits and comforts of others' labor. You've never experienced something like that. You've never heard of anyone like that. Jesus says that's what rulers are like. He said, do you notice that? You notice how rulers and politicians and legislators, you, you ever notice that they lord over people? They have rules for thee and not for me, right? They, they begin to decide who does what all for their own gain. I know this is hard to imagine, but try to picture the Bible as relevant. You know, just, just try to journey with me for a little bit. I, I, I know it's difficult to imagine, well, you know it's not. Because human nature is human nature. And it's been that way since the beginning of time. That we want to be in charge. We want authority. And yet the one who has the right of all, all authority is the Son of Man. And here's what Jesus says to those boys. He says, James, John, Peter, Bart, Matt, come around. You guys want to be great? They're like, yeah, it's about time. All right. We're going to decide, we're, we're going to draw straws. We're, going to, we're getting positions, man. The company, we're going from a startup to a legitimate, right? Like we're, we're going to know titles and we're going to have, we're going to have corner offices and, and we're, we're going to get to decide. I'm going to have a name tag on, on the door outside. And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, that's how everybody else does it. They're like, yeah, not with you. They're like, what? Not with you. You want to be great? Yeah, that's what, that's what we're talking about. You want to be great? You got to become the least. You, you, want to be, you want to be the top dog? Be the chief servant. Why, Jesus? Because not even the Son of Man, the Jewish Superman, came to be served, but to serve and give his life as ransom for many. Shortly after, Jesus is going to prophesy and say, say this, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer and die. And Peter's going, no, you can't. No, you can't because supermen don't die. And he looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Your words are an offense to me because this has always been the plan. Why? The righteous judge would allow himself to be judged. The guilty would judge the innocent. Why? So the guilty can go free. Jesus will trade places and here's the reality. No politician, no king, no legislator will trade places with you, friend. Only Jesus would trade places with you. Only Jesus would step off of his throne, step out of eternity and into time. Imagine if you got to write the story and if you got to be God, become a man. Most of us know how we would show up. Yet he rides in on a donkey, and like a lamb led to a slaughter, he didn't even open his mouth. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh, and he is king. 
And he became king by way of the cross and it flipped, turned the world upside down because through an act of self-giving love, he pierced the stone cold hearts of sinners like you and I. And he molds us and melts us, puts his spirit and his personal spirit inside of us that we may understand what it means to have relationship with a holy transcendent God who can never be quite understood, but he is calling us to know him and be known by him. And he's opened the door through that, through the way of sacrificial love. You go, how do you know Jesus changed the world? I mean, they were hoping for a revolutionary that would overthrow the Roman government. That didn't happen. But did it? Because the Romans ruled the world, the greatest empires known to man. And they lined the streets with crosses, with Christians burning on crosses. And the annuals of time will tell us that they were singing praises to God while Nero was warning any oncomers that Rome was not welcome to Christianity. And now if you were to visit there today, the streets would be lined with once a symbol of death turned a, re a global symbol of life. What Rome is known for today is synonymous with Christianity. Why? Because he won the hearts of people. He changes you from the inside out. Constantine would convert to Christianity on his deathbed. Why? Because Christianity had already won the hearts of people and you cannot legislate hearts. Only Jesus can change you from the inside out. So stop longing for a political revolution. Stop longing for legislators and long for the king of the universe to melt hearts through the self-giving acts of love given by his children that we get to call father. Amen? Because Jesus didn't die to make you a better version of the same old you. He died to make you new. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for who you are and who you are to us. You flip turn the world upside down and you do it because you start with each and every one of us. You turn our personal world upside down. You change us from the inside out. You change our motives, our attitudes. You show us who you are you are the one who changes. Because many of us have lived long enough to know that we just ain't right. We need a Savior. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew in me a right spirit. Change me, mold me into the image of the Son of God so that we may look more and more like Jesus to a world that desperately needs to know you. Let our... Let our selfless acts of love be the thing that melts hearts and change minds let us follow the way of Jesus the way of the cross for your glory and our good and everyone said amen will you give Jesus one more hand clap of praise